How might Australia's cities look different, Hugh, in, let's mm. say, 10 years or 50 years' time? Uh, yeah, well, I, I won't pretend to know the answer. Uh. <laughs> Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. Welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing the future of Australia's major cities, and in particular, the transport links and infrastructure projects that we need to keep our cities livable. Australia is growing, and most of the growth is happening in the capital cities. Melbourne in particular is booming. It's now one of the fastest growing cities in the developed world, Indeed, it's on track to overtake Sydney as Australia's largest capital. Sydney, of course, has been declared full by numerous politicians and commentators going back many years. And Brisbane has been going through a development and building boom of its own. But are we building enough infrastructure to cope? Are we building the right infrastructure? And are we making the best use of the infrastructure we already have? To discuss these issues and more, I'm joined by Grattan Institute's Transport Fellow, Hugh Petruni, who has co-authored several Grattan reports and articles digging into these very questions. Hugh, welcome. Thank you, Paul. Can I begin, Hugh, by asking you to explain your concerns about the way Australia does infrastructure. Would it be fair to say that you think we're getting too much wrong? Oh, it's a good question, Paul. Um, so Grattan now has several reports looking at the way that we identify and assess and then deliver infrastructure in Australia. So I might just run through a couple of those because I think they're all probably relevant to the question you've asked. Please. So the first of those reports was Roads to Riches, which looked at where and uh, on what and in how governments are spending money on infrastructure in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and that report found that very often politics comes ahead of the public interest when it comes to infrastructure spending. So lots of taxpayer dollars have been spent on highways that are not especially important to the economy, but are do happen to be quite important to sort of local marginal electorates, local voters in marginal electorates. We have a phrase for that, don't we? It's called pork barrelling. Yeah, that's that's the way it's uh, that's that's the way it's talked up. Um, so. And one of the big difficulties we found uh, in doing that report was that um, there's very little to stop politicians committing to projects before they're properly evaluated. Mm -hmm. And um, that becomes particularly acute during election campaigns. And then another report that we did was on cost overruns in, in infrastructure projects. And that looked at the cost outcomes of um, 836 different projects that were valued at $20 million or more that were delivered between about 2001 and 2016. And um, what we found in doing that piece of research was that Australian governments have spent around $28 billion more on transport infrastructure than they told taxpayers they would. Say that again, Hugh, how much? 28 billion, it's a staggering amount. Um, it did find that most of the problems were caused by a relatively small number of projects. 
Um, and so the numbers which I have here are mm. that 90% of Australia's cost overrun problem was explained by 17% of projects that exceeded promised costs by more than half. Right. So it's those small but um, small number, but they tend to be the big projects, the mega projects um, that are complex, and they tend to run over by a lot. Mm-hmm. And then most more recently, Paul, we did our report called Unfreezing Discount Rates um, just a few months ago. And so that report looked at um, what may be seen as a kind of an obscure parameter that's used in transport project assessments called the social discount rate. And that particular parameter tells us how we should value impacts or things that happen in the future and even the distant future in some cases. Um, And so that report again found cause for concern because we'd been relying on this obscure parameter that typically doesn't see much public debate at all. Um, And it's been frozen since 1989. And there are some very good reasons some compelling reasons to to suggest that it should have fallen over quite a lot over that period. And that means again that we're 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 not valuing the the impacts of infrastructure quite the way we should. Okay, so let's drill down into some particulars, Hugh. You've mentioned that um, it's often the big, high-profile, headline-grabbing projects that cause the most problems in a public policy sense. Um, let's look at two of those now: Sydney and Melbourne rail links. Mm. Now, Sydney is at last, it appears, getting an an airport, a second airport in the West. Surely we should have a rail link to that airport. Well, that might be the case. And in fact, I would I would agree that I think it's probably right at some point you, you're going to want to connect it by, by rail. Um, How will we know when that point arrives? Yes. So that's, that's a question for some detailed analysis to help us answer. And so we always want to start with a strong evidence base when we're going to be spending any sort of mm. public money, particularly when it's going to be billions of dollars worth. Um, and so the question is that is whether um, and when you might want to build that rail link. Um, and so in the case of that Western Sydney airport rail link, there are some reasonably good reasons to think that it will be needed eventually, but isn't needed today. And so the primary piece of, because we still don't have a business case for that project, which is why not a major concern, I think, uh, I think it is a classic case of politicians getting ahead of the process and wanting to commit to, to um, a politically popular project ahead of the uh, types of analysis we need to really understand its merits. Sounds very familiar. Yep. And so in particular, the, the concerning finding out of the New South Wales and Commonwealth government's own scoping exercise that just wrapped up a few months ago, which looked at demand for passengers and for workers at the new airport and found that for those two, for, for passengers and for um, the workers there, a rail line wouldn't be needed for the demand that that creates for at least the first 10 years of the airport's operation. And the airport won't commence operation until around 2026. So there, there are reasons to think that um, while we may need it eventually, pursuing it today might not be the best call. Is there not a case, however, Hugh, for building before they come? Isn't there a problem with infrastructure being uh, built into major cities, suburbs, developments and causing disruption. Why not build 
the rail link first and the airport and the passengers will then come? Mm, it's a good question. I think there are probably two reasons. So the first is the sheer number and scale of the existing priorities. Mm-hmm. And so Sydney and Melbourne are growing, have grown so much, will continue appear to continue to grow so quickly that there's are so many other ways that we could spend those um, dollars. That would be the, the the first thing. And the second thing is um, that if we are going to um, pursue this project on the basis of build it and they will come, we should at least have some hard numbers and some deep analysis to go with that mm-hmm. and to support that. Um, and so we don't have that at this stage. Okay. So Sydney Airport Rail... Perhaps, but not yet. Let's have a look at Melbourne, where again there is a fairly firm proposal now for a rail link to Tullamarine Airport. Now, I'm a Melbourneian. I know that a rail link to the airport in Melbourne has been discussed and debated and indeed promised for decades, it seems, all my life, really. Now the Commonwealth and state governments uh, finally seem to agree that the thing should be built. Do you agree, Hugh? Well, it's very much the same problem that, again, politicians have got ahead of the process. We still haven't seen a business case for it. And so... Right. So, yeah, I think it's it's definitely not the case that we shouldn't ever build it because, again, it does, it does seem that at some point it will be needed. And um, certainly Infrastructure Victoria, the Victorian government's independent infrastructure advisor, has made that point to say that it is something that we will need eventually. But the time frame that they put around it when they did a big options assessment about 18 months ago was to say that we should be looking to deliver that rail link within about 15 to 30 years. So again, it doesn't appear by, based on their look at things that it's an immediate priority. 15 to 30 years from now. Yeah, or from when they published, which was around eighteen months ago, and I was mm-hmm. yeah. So, and I think Paul, the other the other issue that we have with this is not only do we not have a business case, we still don't really know what the project will look like. There is no agreement about the route alignment. Um, there's been no uh, look at where the train will stop on the way, mm. what the fare structure will, will look like and what impact that will have on people's willingness to take the train. Um, and so without those things, we really don't understand its merits relative to existing, what we already have with um, access by bus mm. and by um, passenger car on the Tullamarine Freeway. We also have this situation where uh, we're just coming off the back of around 18 months of freeway widening works Yes, on the Tullamarine Freeway. And uh, don't all Melburnians know about it. And we all know about it, and it has been slower and has been less reliable over that period of time. And so it's definitely something that is resonating with voters that this is a problem that needs to be solved. But this is a, just a perfect example of where we need, do need to see the analysis and the evidence to show us that what we're reacting to is not this short-term thing that's imminently to be relieved that politicians have now got ahead of and promised all these all this money to try and solve a problem that we don't properly understand. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the process and the policy development um, that I know is a particular concern of yours, Hugh. Your concern not just 
that we may be building the wrong projects at the wrong time, but also you're concerned about the way, if you like, experts encourage governments to make some politically difficult reforms to the way we use our existing infrastructure. Tell us about that concern. Yeah, so you're right. So this is this is a different issue, um, and it is some of the time a concern of ours about how we have debates and discussion um, around valuable structural reforms. So, mm-hmm. so Grattan Institute, um, like a range of other organisations, we are concerned with the merits of structural economic reforms yep. and, and putting the case together for for pursuing those reforms. Um, and what we see when we do that is that often to build the case for doing it, you need to make a lot of assumptions and ideally um, you need to make all of those assumptions very clear. And so in situations where that doesn't happen, politicians, for example, can be very tempted to use analysis about how we change the way we do things um, without recalling to the assumptions that underpin certain estimates of impacts, um, for example. You're suggesting our politicians sometimes cherry pick and exaggerate? Yeah, well, there are probably different ways to to frame it, but it it certainly seems that way. I mean, Mm -hmm. our our report that we did on traffic congestion in Sydney and Melbourne called Stuck in Traffic um, in October last year, it it looked at the way that that, um, politicians have um, used estimates of the social costs of congestion. Mm -hmm. And so um, we had a look at how these are calculated, these estimates are calculated, and how they're used as well. And they are very frequently cited because they're they're a good way of, you know, telling the public that there is this big problem there. But then um, they're also very often used in a sort of somewhat um, misleading way or perhaps misused is the best way to say it. So people, politicians, for example, will talk about the um, estimate estimates of the social cost of congestion as additions to GDP or as additions mm-hmm. to the government budget balance. Um, and both of those interpretations misrepresent what those estimates actually are. So that report, Hugh, stuck in traffic, made quite an impact because Grattan suggested that our big cities, most notably Sydney and Melbourne, should look at a road congestion charge. Now, just remind me, what is that and what's the case for road congestion charging in Australia's big cities? Yeah, so congestion charging is the idea that by putting a price or changing the way that we pay for our to use our roads can have an impact on the quality of our roads mm-hmm. and the congestion that we face when we're traveling on them. So at the moment we pay um, the main costs that we pay as a driver are fuel excise, which um, has some correlation with how much we use roads and correlation with the tr- congestion that we might be causing. And we also pay registration, which is a lump sum annual cost. And so that will have no um, relationship with how much and when we use our roads. Mm -hmm. And so what our report did was rather than look at exactly the design of a new congestion charging scheme, we wanted to look at diagnosing the problem to begin with. And so that was what we did. We collected um, a very large data set of Google Maps trip times 
um, around three and a half million observations all up over around six months. Um, and so we could have a look at the profile and the um, typical delay that we see on the network in different parts of the network at different times of the day. So what was the bottom line? Surely Sydney and Melbourne are stuck in traffic, Hugh. We're congested, aren't we? Well, depends on where you look. Um, so we found that it's while it's not a problem for everyone because there are, you know, our cities are very big and very sprawled and there are parts of our our city where uh, motorists do not experience very much congestion at all. Mm -hmm. And that does come um, to people as somewhat of a surprise because most of us do tend to remember the terrible congestion that we find ourselves sitting in. It resonates quite strongly. But um, And then certainly we, we would agree that um, in certain parts of both cities and particularly at certain times of the day, um, congestion does become a major concern that um, governments need to be thinking seriously about how they can resolve. And so we had um, we had a look at at exactly um, what might underpin that. And so one of our, one of the key findings I think was that we tend to see the worst congestion in places where it is hardest to add capacity. And it's not to say that we shouldn't add any more capacity. Um, because you can do that for reasons other than simply reducing congestion. Mm -hmm. But it is to say that it is very costly and at some point it's going to become too hard and we need to start thinking very seriously about the design of road of changes to the way we pay for roads and congestion charges is one of those options. Okay, so the solution, if there is such a thing, to congestion in our major cities is not big major new roads. The yeah, I think that's correct. So the solution to congestion will not be big major new roads. Um, that's not to say we don't need them and don't want them because they offer... So what happens, you may build a new road and it may fill up with new traffic hmm. and in which case congestion may be marginally better or not much better at all after mm. a number of years. Mm. But that's not to say that yet that road will not have delivered um, a measurable benefit to people who... Um, have elected to take that road over whatever other means of travel they previously had. And in cities that are growing as quickly as ours, then um, new roads can be, a, can be a solution, but perhaps not to congestion, perhaps to other issues, I think is, is the point. Okay, so if I were uh, asked or forced by my government to pay a congestion levy or a congestion charge when I drove to work each day, would you be able to get me to work quicker? Well, I think the answer to that is yes, but the actual design of a congestion charging scheme is work that still needs to be done. And so there are throughout the world, there are cities that have implemented such charges. So London is one, Singapore's another, Stockholm's another. Mm. Um, and they've all done it differently. And, um, and the design of it does tend to be a city and country specific thing. So for example, Singapore is now moving to an entirely, it has had a congestion charging scheme since um, the 1970s, I believe. Um, it is now moving to, and that, that's right, it's the scheme it has had in place is one where it's, it's set up physical gantries that yes. monitor the flow of traffic. It's now over the coming years going to move to a GPS, monitor, GPS trip tracking mm. scheme. And mm. so, that's um, that's a big step, and um, implementing something like that in Australia would need to be very closely assessed before we could 
determine whether it's feasible and publicly palatable. Um, and so the scheme that we have that London has in place is a much a much sort of older fashioned scheme with, that um, functions via number plate recognition and gantries. And so again, um, I mean that type of scheme could be right for Australia, but we probably haven't done the work at this point to to be able to say exactly um, how much it'll cost and the implementation pathway and um, exactly what measurable impact it would have on people's day-to-day experience. So a congestion tax clearly is political poison, however. I think I remember the uh, Victorian minister ruling out such a thing on the very morning that our stuck-in-traffic report was released. So Infrastructure Australia, however, seems to be uh, positively disposed towards congestion charging. Tell us about some of their work. What do they advocate and what do you make of their case? Uh, Yeah, so they, I think um, in many ways, Infrastructure Australia and Grattan Institute are on the same page in terms of the need for governments to look very closely at the design of new new ways to charge motorists for Mm -hmm. how they travel in order to address congestion. and so Infrastructure Australia recently released some um, estimates of the impacts and the benefits of pursuing such reforms. Um, so while we would agree with the general need for such a policy change, it, it, um, our concern sort of falls into this uh, concern with the specific way estimates have been um, produced. So just tell me first, what is Infrastructure Australia and what are your concerns about their case for a congestion tax? So, oh, very good question. Infrastructure Australia is the Commonwealth Government's independent infrastructure advisor. Um, and they were set up in 2008, I believe, um, as part of the part of the idea of it was taking some of the politics mm. out of the infrastructure decision-making processes um, and providing a greater... Um, um, and more transparent um, evidence base for infrastructure decision making. Um, and so what they have talked about in their recent publication is um, introducing a scheme that would charge motorists more precisely depending on the place and the time and the distance that they travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they generate they've generated these um, measurable impacts on Australia's GDP from pursuing these changes. Good news or bad? Oh, very good news. Really? Um, so here the numbers are $21 billion in additional GDP every year um, from 2031, um, and that increasing over time to around over $36 billion per year by 2047. So, All right, let's do it. Yeah, well, look, it does sound very good, um, except... Our hesitation with it would be that we, at this stage, have seen very relatively little information about how the numbers are generated. So right. we don't we don't get a really much of a sense of exactly what the scheme's design would entail. So, for example, here would be things like what the technologies used might involve. 
And so as we talked about before with Singapore and, and London, both using very different types of technologies, um, we'd want to know a lot more about that before we, we went down this path. Mm-hmm. And um, we also don't see much about exactly what and how the um, scheme would be implemented. Um, also concerning is that we don't have a sense when these very large um, benefits uh are talked about of exactly what assumptions have underpinned them in terms of how uh, translating a reduction in congestion so yes. how much quicker it is for you to get to work and then how that can be mapped across to changes in gdp mm. so we don't really have a good sense about that translation process and probably our final concern would be that the idea that then and as we talked about earlier politicians will go out and talk about the uh, $21 billion of additional GDP every year from these reforms on the on the, kind of giving the impression that they are very robust estimates. And so I think it's much more likely that there is a lot of uncertainty around it and that we would want to see a range published for or talked about for these kind of impacts rather than trying to convince the public that these single numbers are robust. So you've talked, let, let's sum it up, Hugh. You've talked about an absence of business cases for these big and expensive projects. You've talked about uh, public policy making processes being lacking. Let's do a bit of blue sky thinking. Tell us how you would like to see infrastructure debated in Australia. What would a good policy process look like? So I think it would involve uh, much more fulsome assessment of options for new infrastructure and and both for new infrastructure and for getting the most out of our existing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would involve much more transparent analysis of those options. Um, and Grattan Institute is here to help, huh? Yeah, we are. So importantly, assessing the impacts of, of big new uh, infrastructure projects or big new infrastructure reforms, as we've talked about, can be really challenging. Um, and there's always a lot of uncertainty because we are talking about impacts that extend in over decades. Sure. Um, and there's we know that there's going to be a lot of change in our transport networks over the coming decades as well. Um, and so... We are, we're certainly not trying to give the impression that doing any of this stuff is easy. Um, but in terms of what we would like to see from um, government's processes in decision making, it's just a lot more transparency and a lot more putting a lot more options on the table and making um, their various merits much more transparent to the public and and to the public debate on these issues. Okay, and here's a perhaps a hard question, but if we had, a well-informed, rigorous public policy process like that, how might Australia's cities look different, Hugh, in, let's Mm. say, 10 years or 50 years' time? Uh, Yeah, well, I I won't pretend to know the answer uh, (laughs) or to give you exactly some sort of definite definite view on how cities might look in the future. It's... um, I think there are there's so much uncertainty at the moment and there's so much technological change that we're seeing and so we know that things will look very different. I think one thing that we do know is that with better processes in place we could at least understand have have a much better understanding of the rationale for how we're spending huge amounts of taxpayer dollars um 
and we could have the confidence that the decisions that we're making are the best decisions that we can make given available information that we have at this point. Um, and I think in closing, I think it's worth noting just how important these decisions are because mm. our city, particularly our biggest cities, have just grown so rapidly that getting the right projects um, is going to make a big difference. Terrific. Thank you, Hugh. Thanks for your insights and your analysis today. And thank you to our listeners. If you'd like to download a copy of Hugh's reports and articles on the way Australia does infrastructure, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, reports, events by following us on Twitter at GrattanInst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. And thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.